All right, we're continuing where we left off. It is uh, January 12, 2019, and we're continuing with our worship service. We're going to have the thought of the week and prayer. All right, here's our thought of the week. God does not leave us without hope. However, we must know whatever solution provided must not only benefit us in allowing us freedom from the state in which we find ourselves, it must meet the rigorous standards of God's uncompromising righteousness. His holy standards are the reason we are in this place of death to begin with. Solutions which satisfy us are not really solutions if they do not get to the root of the issue. If there are two warring parties and reconciliation is considered, both parties must consider the solution. Any solution in which both sides are not satisfied is no solution at all. In many cases, there is compromise. In the case between God and man, there is no compromise, since God has perfect righteousness and justice. And may I add, he will not negotiate. God did not leave us in such a helpless situation. There are motivations in God which accounts for his condemnation of the human race. There are also motivations which would compel God to find a solution. The fact that our Lord was judged for the sins of the entire human race says that God is uncompromising. At the same time, it says God is seeking reconciliation. That reconciliation must be on his terms, or else men will remain in a state of condemnation and be judged for the rejection of God's gracious offer. And from John 3.18 from the ESB, it reads, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. At first, it might sound harsh that God's righteousness is uncompromising, but its perfection is actually beautiful. Whoever believes in trust will be saved. We merely need to let go of what we imagined what would be an adequate solution and embrace his gentle gift instead. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And that is the thought of the week. We'll turn it over to Fred for the prayer. Okay, at this time, I'm asking, are there any special prayer requests you can bring before the Lord? I would like to add on Chandler and also Gretel, um, who is going through treatment for breast cancer. Okay. Yeah, I would like to pray for the church as a whole. As we talked about its infancy stages and so forth, I would also pray for those of us who have knowledge of uh, the deeper things uh, that we would accept and execute our calling. Okay, let us bow our head. Heavenly Father, Lord, we're so grateful, Lord, for this beautiful Sunday morning, asking the Lord that you 
and thankful, Lord, for the blessings that you have bestowed upon us. We're especially grateful, Lord, for the Word of Truth Church, Lord, that we have a we have a place and we have where we can get truth and be led and a place that takes us from A to B to C. Thanking you, Lord, for your blessings, uh, which continue asking, Lord, that uh, in regards to the church, Lord, that you might watch over each individual member of this church, that we might attain and understand the calling of God and our purpose here on this earth, that as we receive the word of God and truth, that we might walk in that knowledge and through, that we might have the humility as things are revealed to us, Lord, that we might have the humility to walk in that new truth, in that new knowledge. Asking, Lord, for your blessings on the entire church, the world church, the, the church that everybody that flies under the banner, the bloodstained banner of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that the purpose and your purpose and your plan for the church might be met and will be met. Asking, Lord, that you would, in Dwight's, uh, that Chandler, Lord, who we're thanking him for his service, for and asking that you would continue, Lord, to bless him as he was in the military, as we had moved into precarious times in the Middle East, Lord, uh, over there in Iraq and Iran, Lord. Watch over all our military. And, Lord, might you guide and lead them. And all our leaders might be guided and led in your will to make good decisions. Asking that you remember Gretel, who's undergoing severe medical problems, Lord, that you would keep your hands on her, Lord. Remember her. Continue to keep her. Lord, asking all these things, Lord, that uh, the pastor who has reached retirement and he moves into a different phase in his life, that you would lead and guide him, Lord, as he has designs to move forward in furthering your message, this message that involves the mystery of God, the deeper things of God, that you might provide a platform where he might reach more people, lead, guide, and direct us, and keep us all in Christ's loving name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Amen. All right. Amen. Yeah. So we're going to move forward, and um, you have notes before you, and the, we will go in that direction. Our verse today is John 14.10. We started it last week. We're continuing with that thought. The verse reads, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. That's in John 14.10. 
in your notes, so it finally comes down to what we believe. While I give the disciples credit for their believing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, they were now challenged beyond anything they ever experienced. They were in the midst of a theological crisis. They would have to stand alone if they were to believe the words of Jesus, apart from the religious and political leaders of their day, whom they respected all of their lives. They could run from their fears. Uh, they had to stand on the fact that God demonstrated beyond any doubt. I'm sorry, they couldn't run from their fears. They had to stand on the fact that God had demonstrated beyond any doubt that this man they had been following for three years is speaking truth. That truth would be different from anything they imagined. Quote, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, unquote. Would they fully trust him? The religious leaders are already at odds with him and even tried to kill him. Quote, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to, to stone you, and yet you are going back? That's, unquote, that's John 1, 11, 18, rather. The disciples were in the best spot they could be, challenging their preconceived and religious ideas. We should learn to respect their contribution to the body of Christ. Ephesians 2.20 talks about that the church has the foundation of Jesus Christ, the apostles, and prophets. So it, it does come down to believing. So last week we, we tried to get through this, and obviously there was more than we had time to manage. So we're going to move forward. We did deal with this phrase, don't you believe, and uh, Jesus was the odd man out here, meaning everybody else believed the doctrines of the day. Uh, Jesus said to Peter, who correctly identified that uh, Jesus was the Christ, Son of the living God, in Matthew 16, but when Jesus began to unfold what the Messiah would then do, which is to go to Jerusalem, be killed and crucified and all that, Peter rejected that thought. Not only did he, he didn't even want to consider that Jesus would go through those things. In their view, the Messiah would uh, go on to be king over Israel and to rule. And all these things would happen that they had read in the Old Testament, the golden age, the millennium. But God had another plan. So Jesus was unfolding that plan to the disciples and they were rejecting it. Now it wasn't just a philosophical debate. Hey, one person said this and you say that. No, there was tremendous weight on Jesus' side. God demonstrated through this man signs, wonders, miracles that he was definitely speaking for God. And if God were to change directions in midstream, he would have to signal that change. So if people are following you, you have to make sure they know that you have turned. Well, God did that through signs, wonders, and various miracles by the Holy Spirit, which are beyond any doubt 
outside of any human capability or within the realm of human possibility, these miracles, signs, and wonders were performed. And it wasn't just performed for believers in some cave somewhere where it was, you know, uh, you know, off to the beaten path. No, these were done in public. So, interesting reading the writings of Josephus, who was a Jewish historian. Many don't know whether he was saved or lost, but he was one who chronicled all the events that happened in the Jewish age and, and so forth. And um, even there, the ones who opposed Jesus, right, the admitted that he did miracles. This man did miracles, right? So that's in his writings. And Josephus is said to be an unbeliever, but nobody can say what he finally ended up to be. But in his writings, if you go to the, the books that Josephus wrote, he was a historian. And he chronicled the fact that even those who disagreed with Jesus, who, who wanted him dead, knew that he miraculous signs and wonders. So this is this is not to be disputed. This is not something we say, oh yeah, somebody did a miracle and, and that crook in my neck that I always had is all now it's all clear. No, we're talking about miraculous signs. Raising the dead, opening the eyes of people who were blind, not blind while I can't see for a minute. No, I'm talking about blind from birth. Uh, and, and on and on, uh, you know, it, it, the miracles, healing lepers, uh, you walking on water, calming the sea. Now, whoever spoke to the wind and the waves to be still, and they stopped. There's nobody on earth that has such power. Anyway, all of that is to say, we don't stand on just some philosophical word or some persuasive argument. We have the testimony of God from power. God demonstrated that these things are true because he's behind them. If Jesus were not the Christ, the Son of the living God, God would not stand behind him. God would not have resurrected him. God would not have given him the power to do the miraculous signs and wonders. So we have to admit to ourselves that this is the way. And Jesus has given us perfect illustrations here about the dynamic relationship that he has with the Father that soon would be the same relationship that would happen for all of us at Pentecost. So let's continue. Jesus was not believed. And when it came to believing the information from his own people, it says he came to his own but his own did not believe him. They rejected the teaching. They rejected their Messiah. There would be swift judgment that would follow their rejection, and it would come through the destruction of Israel. And all of that happened as history for us to look at. We can go now and view it. Uh, but we, were, we will continue that fact. But I leave this whole first point, don't you believe, because... We now are challenged with believing the words of Christ. Where, where, whatever direction he takes, we are supposed to follow. You know, I, I liken this to you know, when you are traveling somewhere. This is way back when nobody had GPSs. And you're following somebody. 
And all of a sudden, they turn, they stop, they slowly pull over, and then they turn around. And you're thinking, wait a minute, what, where are they going? And then it quickly dawns on you, they made a wrong turn. <laughs> they lost. Especially if they have to turn around again. So when you're following somebody, it's very clear whether they know where they're going or not. And you're, you can kind of figure it out. When we follow God, the signals of where he's going is very obvious. We're, when we talk to people and we are debating with them about, oh, well, is this the word of God or is the Quran the word of God or is some other holy writings the word of God? This is the word of God. How do we know? God demonstrated it through signs, wonders, and miracles. These things are, go beyond the pale of reasoning, but to the matter of fact. In fact, uh, I'll give you a description where Paul says it. He uses this argument. I'm not just giving you this. And I know this is... So 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Right? This is where Paul uses the same argument that I'm making here. It says, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we'll read uh, verse 3. I came to you in weakness with great fear and trembling. Imagine a speaker coming to the Corinthians in weakness and great fear and trembling. Now, you would think a speaker would have confidence, knowledge, right, poise. Right? These are things that when you're standing before a crowd of people, you want to have. Paul, on the other hand, says he came to them in weakness, great fear and trembling. Imagine that. That doesn't sound like it would make for a good speaker to me. But look at verse 4 and follow. He says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words. Now, Paul was not an accomplished speaker. This is what he's saying. I, I didn't come with great oratory skills and, and great debater's techniques and all these things. He's telling you, even though these things seem to be weakness to us, he's saying, he's making a point here. He says, I didn't come with all that, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power. That's the power that he's talking about. And then he says, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I would hope your faith rests on God's power as well. Now, am I doing signs, wonders, and miracles? No. But those I believe in, those I trust in, Paul, the apostles, Jesus, right? God has signaled that this is the, the direction. And guess what we have? We have the record. We have the writings of Paul and the apostles and the prophets. So this is the way. God has demonstrated it, not through wise and persuasive words, but through the demonstration of the Spirit's power. And, and more than that, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom. I would hope you are not persuaded by human wisdom, but on God's power. And that is basically what I'm saying. Back to the notes here. So, I hope this is what you got to take away from, don't you believe? Listen, Jesus stood there and all the disciples were looking him straight in the face and not believing. They were like, no, your words are odd, strange. I don't expect you, you're off the rails and you don't even know it, Jesus. Uh, who, where is this Father? Show us the Father. 
We don't know the way. What are you talking about? What way are you talking about? None of that was in their theology. And so it was proper for them to ask those questions. Not dumb as we might say, oh, Philip, you're asking this dumb question. No, it, it was proper because it was not in their theology. And they, they acknowledged that fact and they were able to ask these questions, which to us are pertinent. So Jesus is pleading with them, don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father is in me? He's not saying this, hey, let me introduce this new concept to you. He's been introducing the concept throughout his ministry. We only have a snippet of what Jesus said and what he taught. What was, we don't have the full that the disciples had. The disciples were with Jesus 24-7. They ate with him, slept. He, they were in the same proximity, so when it was time to go to bed, I would imagine they had questions. I imagine when, Peter, when Jesus was able to calm the sea, you know what Peter said after that? He said, what manner of man is this? You don't think they would have questions for him? <laughs> they, were, they probably peppered Jesus with questions. If it, if it was me, I would, I would. I would be in awe, just like Peter was, but I would also have a lot of questions that I would want answered. And thankfully, the disciples went there. They did ask the questions. They were caught up in the traditions of their day. Just like Jesus says when Peter made that pronouncement, later he began to tell him, he says, you have in your thoughts, in your heart, the things of men and not the things of God. And this is where we have to draw the line as well. You have to drop your religious training that you had. You have to drop your tradition, your culture, your race, all those things that actually may be impediments to you learning the word of God and, and coming to the knowledge of the truth. You have to drop all the traditions and things that you've learned and come with humility to the Father. So that, that is how you learn. So, okay, so let's keep going. You, don't you believe, and point number two is that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. So I went through here. I'm not going to go through the whole thing that we covered last time. And here's where we sort of ended. We started talking about the baptism of the Spirit when possibly Jesus may have received the fact that uh, uh, this relationship, I would simply say it was at the beginning of his ministry. We don't have any major record of Jesus teaching anything prior to uh, John the Baptist. Uh, he did ask questions of the Pharisees and rabbis when he went to Jerusalem and they went up before the Passover and at 12 years old Jesus went there but <clears throat> he, what he did was he asked questions. Now the questions that he asked were so unique that it made those rabbis think. It put them on their heels so that they said man what this boy is asking questions and is making us come to the realization of what the answers are in the Word of God. So 
even people who follow Jesus, you know, when they hated and they wanted him killed and they sent out spies. Can you go to this, some of the, the where he has these teachings and rallies, and I want you to, to spy on him, get some information that we could use against him so we can discredit him and so forth. And you know what they came back saying? No man ever spoke like this man spoke. So when I realized that, I came to the realization that Jesus really didn't have a ministry prior to his earthly ministry with John the Baptist. Then you see the depiction of, you know, the, the spirit coming down on him like a dove. You see um, the Father from heaven speaking. So you have right there the Trinity. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit right there. And this is the time when the Father makes the pronouncement. This is my Son, my beloved Son, and whom I am well pleased, right? Uh, Jesus begins his ministry by going out into the desert and so forth. You know the story. So when did the did Jesus experience baptism of the Spirit? No, but it was this dynamic relationship. Remember, there was no minus that had to happen for Jesus. He didn't have a sin nature. He, didn't have, he wasn't in Adam. He was the last Adam. So there were definitely distinctions that happened. And so I would assume that that would be the case. So we, we talked about baptism. Uh, and then we moved on to point E. To E, his, he was conscious of his experience and knew the dynamics of the Father's presence in him. Imagine this. I know right now that Fred is sitting in the room with me. Now, if there was a wall, a partition up, and I couldn't see Fred physically, I could still know that Fred is in the room with me. You know, it's almost like when we say a conscious presence, it, it is not literally that you say, oh, I heard somebody was talking to me, but you realize that that person's presence is there with you. So it has to be pronounced. It can't just be, well, I think by faith that that person's with me. I think the scriptures say he should be with me, so I think by faith. So there was a key time for Christ, especially under pressure, when he was in the Passion, and he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he fell down and remember he only took Peter, James and John in this place and he fell down and he said Father if it is your will let this cup pass from me but nevertheless not as I will but you will and so you went, you know the story and Jesus told the disciples that all of them would leave him but he wouldn't be alone he said the Father is with me so the Father went through the cross with Christ. He did not abandon him. He went through the cross. And he, he was empowered by the Spirit, and even to the point of receiving the wrath of God on our behalf. Christ didn't receive the wrath of God for his sin, but for ours. So in this, in this way, Jesus became the Savior of the world. So there is a conscience, a conscious presence of the Father. You know, I was thinking about how is it, how, how can I teach this? 
And the only way I, I thought about it was, if you ever closed your eyes and, uh, and then something, something strange, your eyes are closed, you can't see anything but darkness. All of a sudden you open your eyes and guess what? Somebody's staring at you. Has it ever happened to you? How did you know something was odd? Something was amiss there that you opened your eyes and then somebody was looking right at you. How did you know? You didn't see. They didn't say anything. But you were conscious of their presence and their attention toward you. You can develop that consciousness when it comes to the Word of God and the Spirit and, and truth. And the conscious existence of the Father becomes more pronounced. The conscious existence of Jesus is because we don't just have Jesus in us. We also have the Father. We'll get to that later in verse 20 through 23. So this point here, point E, is important. Whether you feel it, you don't feel it, do you understand it, you don't know, this is true of Jesus. It is also true of us. I'm going to look at John 14, 20, which says it. Right? So this is what he says. John 14, verse 20, says, On that day, you will realize. And when it says you will realize, King James says you will know. Right? It's the same thing, same thought. On that day, you will realize. He's not talking about apprehending it by faith. Because if he was talking about that, then the disciples could have known that when Jesus was telling them. Because all they had to do was say, okay, I believe it. If you said, Jesus, you, this is how it's going to be, I believe it. But Jesus says, you know what? Now, even if you don't understand, when that happens, when the Spirit comes, he will indwell you, he will fill you, he will baptize you, and you will realize consciously that, what are you going to realize? He says here, that I am in the fa my Father, and that you are in me, and I am in you. So when he says, I am in my Father, you're going to realize the very thing that Jesus is saying here. Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father? This is the relationship. And then verse 11, the one we're going to get to after this verse. Believe me when I tell you, when I say that I am in the Father. Now, right now, they could believe it, but in verse 20, they would know it. They would understand and realize. And how would they do that? God has to break through to your conscious mind. Faith can reach out to a reality that we don't yet have and say, I believe it. I trust that. That is true. This is a realization of, this is faith meeting the reality face to face. You can't know it otherwise. Verse 20, on that day you will realize that I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever, and, and, and then in verse 23, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Let's look at this for a minute. In context. Right. Somebody will say, well, what is obey my teaching? That means keep the law. Right. That means obey the commandments. Right. What is his teaching? If we look at the context, 
his teaching is about this dynamic relationship. That's what it's about. He's introducing them to the church age. And, and when you get to this realization of when the church age is inaugurated at Pentecost, you realize these things are so. How do you realize? What, what, what changes? Uh, the Holy Spirit comes in a brand new way to establish the church through indwelling us, filling us, baptizing us with the Spirit, giving us gifts, and the sealing ministry of the Spirit, where it's a guarantee of our inheritance until the purchased possessions for those who were redeemed. So this is literally the realization of what God has given us. We can't just chalk this up to say, yeah, well, it's doesn't mean anything. It's just comprehending it by faith. If it were, they could just simply have that now. He's urging them to have that now, to believe, but then there's something different that happens on that day. What day? Pentecost. Then in verse 23, I'm going to skip through. Uh, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and will come to them. And we will come to them and make our home with them. We know about the indwelling of the Father. We know about the indwelling of the Son. We know about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. These are things that we've learned through Scripture. But now, not only are these things a reality, but God is telling us that we can have conscious understanding of these things. Yeah, conscious. I I know it's as hard for us to talk in these ways, but if I don't, then I think I am doing a disservice to the context of what Jesus is trying to convey to the disciples. The disciples are asking the right questions. What do you mean? What are you talking about? How can this be? What do you, I don't understand. Right? They're doing the right thing. But Jesus now begins to go into uh, a discourse. He has their attention. They are leaning forward now. And he begins to teach him. By the time he gets to 17, guess what he says to the Father? He's praying. He says, Father, I gave them the words you gave me. They have received them. They do believe that I am the one you sent. They got it. He's leaving the church now, right? This is Jesus says, I'm getting ready to go. But Father, I just want to pray. I want to tell you, I'm leaving these people, this, this group, of the foundation of the church. I'm leaving them in your hands. Protect him from the evil one. All the things that we get to in John chapter 17. So we know that the disciples made it through. They understood. And they got to Pentecost. Uh, so we have somewheres to go that they have not been, that, that they have already been. So let's keep going so we can get to this. G- point F. Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in Jesus. This is back to our notes. And what is that? This is mutual possession, right? If There's two sides of this. On the one hand, we're in Jesus, and Jesus is in us. Like Jesus didn't just say, yeah, uh, the Father's in me. Right? He could have said it, but there was two things that he always said that it meant. The Father is in me, and I... And in the Father. So there's two sides of this. And what do we say when there's two sides? It's mutual. Mutual what? Possession. 
We're going to get to what that means and how it all shakes out, right? It is not only that the Father is in Jesus, but also Jesus is in the Father. This is where the disciples balked in believing, even though they heard this before. They did not understand it, and they did not believe it. Now, don't blame them. Don't, don't be too harsh on them. Remember, it's all the new information. This is theology they had never broached before. And what did they do? They balked. They, they, they just said, no, this just can't be. I don't understand. How does, you know, natural. I think the first time you probably heard the mystery and all this information that we're talking about, you probably said, no, nah, come on. None of the churches are talking about that. So that can't be true. I don't believe that that's the, no, I don't think so. I, the, our church is talking about evangelism and things that are more important and how we do this and how we do that, right? The people will reject that out of hand. So let's talk about the dynamics of this. What is the evidence of Jesus being in the Father and the Father in Jesus? If we're going to know what this relationship is, how can we best understand it? I could put on my thinking cap and come up with ways of how it could work. Or I could look at the scripture and derive from the scripture how it worked with Jesus, since he says that same thing is going to happen to us. So that's what I want to do with these points going forward. Let's see if we can get through these points. What is the evidence? Okay, so here's what it would look like. Okay, What is it like to be in the Father? Right? The teaching of the Father's plan or my teaching. This, Jesus says this in 23 and 24. When he says that he is in the Father, that means he understands the Father's plan. Now, I notice it's not in our notes. Uh, if you go to John 16, 16, and you look at verse here, uh, from verse 13 where he says... But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will only speak what he hears. He will tell you what is yet to come. Verse 14. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. So Jesus says, from me. Right? That's what, but then he points out in verse 15, all that belongs to the Father is mine. So, when we talk about us being in another, that means we experience and possess all that that other person has. This is very important. Make sure you keep it. This is the thought. If Jesus is in the Father, what does it mean that he's in the Father? Well, right now, Jesus says right here, here it is, all that belongs to the Father is mine. Prior, he says, they were glorifying me. They will take from mine. Notice, Jesus didn't say, this is really the Father's, and I'm telling you this. He's telling you how it all, the mechanics of it all. He possesses it. When Jesus says it's mine, he, 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 know, he doesn't think, well, I'm, it's borrowed. He thinks it's his. Right? So this is where I get the mutual possession. Jesus says, this information is mine. He's telling you where he got it from. The Father. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That's where he says. And then he says, that is why I said the Spirit will receive from, from me and will make it known to you. So you're getting it from me. 
because it's mine. But let me tell you, by the way, he didn't have to put that in there, but he did. Why do we need to know that this comes from the Father? It's because it's part of the Father's eternal purpose, his plan. It's been given now to Jesus, and now Jesus is Lord. So even though we have the information from the Father, we have Jesus as our Lord. He's the one who is over the church. Right? This is the body of Christ. He's the authority right, over the church. So now you see Paul speaking in terms of both. How do we see that? Paul says it like this. He starts out Ephesians chapter 1. Worthy of praise and glorification is God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and talks about more. He talks about both entities, both personalities, as part of the hierarchy of his understanding of who God is and how the plan shakes out. So he doesn't just say, worthy is the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, he gives acknowledgement to God the Father. He gives acknowledgement to the Lord Jesus Christ. So here, Jesus is saying in John chapter 16, he says, all that belongs to the Father is mine. Is Jesus being presumptuous there? Is that true? Does, does all that belong to the Father now Jesus is? What are we talking about here? We're talking about uh, Roman-style adoption. By virtue of the fact that we are baptized into Christ, meaning we possess all that he has, he possesses all that we have. If Christ has that same relationship with the Father, which obviously he does, all that belongs to the Father is Christ, and all that belongs to Christ is the Father's. So that's why the Father's in authority, and what's happening in that relationship with Jesus? The Father can do whatever he wants, because he has the authority. That's how Jesus is stepping aside. He's not Lord when he is in that relationship with the Father. Now, after it's over, he is declared to be Lord, right? And, and after Jesus submitted to all of what he went through, even the ignominious cross, therefore God highly exalted him. And he gave him a name which is above every name. At the name of Jesus, everyone, right? This, this is the title that Christ earned. He didn't have it. So when he was here, what did he do? Well, being in appearance as a man, he made himself humble. He humbled himself and made him self-obedient, even to the death on the cross. That's a shameful death, where they had to strip you naked. Imagine that. He was stripped naked in front of all of his loved ones. They didn't just want to kill you. They wanted to shame you as well. And this Christ suffered that kind of death for us, physically speaking. And he, he did that for the Father as well. So anyway, getting back to this thought. So all that belongs to the Father is mine. So this is the point to make. My first point is that what does it mean that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father? Well, one thing it means I get all that belongs to the Father. What's that? The plan. The eternal purpose of the Father is now in Christ. And Christ, all of this revolves around the person of Christ and his body. That's us. We're his body, by the way. So being in the Father is representative of Christ experiencing all that the Father has. 
and in the relationship that we're talking about, God the Father is not just showing up in Christ to say, hey, guys, I'm over here. Uh, listen, guys, I'm the Father. That's Christ. I'm the That's not what it's about. It's more about the Father has something to tell us. That's why he's showing up in Christ. It's about the eternal purpose. Right? That was hidden from ages and past generations, but it is now revealed. So, point number two. Let's, let's look at, uh, well, the scripture in John 14, 23 and 24. Uh, the reason I bought that, let me get, get to that. 14, 23 and 24 says, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. The words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So what teaching is he talking about? He's, ta he's not talking about the commandments. He's, talk he's talking about the commands that were given to him by the Father. You've got to look at the context to determine what he's talking about. So even if he says in verse 15, if you love me, keep my commands. What, what are your commands? Your commands are what he has told you here is going to unfold in this new age. This is what it's all about. It's what it comes down to. So, so let's get back to our notes here. Okay, point number two. The Father, okay, in the Father. What does it mean? Literally, the Father is speaking through Jesus, right? That, that, is, that is what it means to be in it. Well, really, it also has to do with the Father in Jesus, but we're talking about the results that we can see of this relationship, right? So the Father is speaking through Jesus, meaning uh, that would really be more um, the Father is in Christ, right? That, that's, but the relationship is still allows for both sides to function, right? Jesus gets the knowledge and the experience and the plan from the Father, and he's able to teach, right? So that's how we have to see it. Point number three... I'm going to move, oh, actually, um, so in the Father, literally, uh, the Father is speaking. These are results of the relationship. So I'm going to turn to John 12, 49 and 50. Let's look at this. John 12. If we look at 49 and 50, these last two verses, Jesus says, For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me, commanded me what to, to say and that I have all that I have spoken I know that his command leads to eternal life so whatever I say is just what the father has told me to say so when it says just what the father has told me to say he's saying not only does he say what the father says but he says it exactly the way that the father wants him to say it it's not just I'm mimicking what the Father says. I am giving you the personality of the Father as well. So that's that verse uh, 49 and 50, right? And then there's 14:24, which would be which we already read. 24b. If I turn to 14:24b, is uh, these words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So he's acknowledging that by me being in the Father and that the Father being in me, the relationship that works, 
The way this relationship works is I not only have the knowledge and the will of the Father and the personality of the Father coming through so that the Father can communicate his will, purpose, and plan through us, or, or in this case, through Jesus. So this is important to note because we're talking about the results of what this relationship looks like. Point number three, in the Father, right? Jesus says, I am in the Father. There's a personal conscious presence of the Father. So this is what we talked about earlier. So I'm just reiterating it. That Jesus acknowledged that it was the Father living in him. Right? So living is personal. It is not just, well, I've learned these facts of what the Father said. And now I know I can repeat them to you. For him to say that the Father is living in him means he's alive in him. And that is a unique experience, and I'm calling it dynamic, because this is point number four. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. Now look at verse 10 in our context. Uh, stand by, guys. I, it may go away. Stand by. Okay, so as I continue, we're talking about the um, this mutual relationship has results that follow that we want to make sure we understand. So we we did three. There's a personal conscious. We're at point G, but there are some points to this. So there's a personal conscious presence of the Father. So then point four, the Father in me, what, is, what does it mean? Rather, it is the Father living in me, doing the work. So at the end, we didn't get to this point yet in verse uh, 10, which we will get to. But, but here's the part. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, Rather, it is the Father, notice, living in me, who is doing the work. So notice, he didn't say, it is the Father living in me who is speaking the words. You would think that would be appropriate there. But he doesn't say this here. What is he saying? He's saying, doing the work. So Jesus is saying, even if you don't acknowledge or recognize that the Father is in me, like I'm telling you to believe, what you should realize is there is a supernatural dynamic to me that is not like anybody else. The work that I am doing, it is not me doing it. I'm a regular human being. I walk around with you. We talk. We do the same things. But the things that are happening, obviously, are not me. There's a spiritual, supernatural dynamic going on here. You should believe it, even if it's just the understanding of that. In fact, that's what he says in the next verse, where he says, believe me when I tell you that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe the evidence of the works themselves. You've got to know that there's some supernatural thing going on here with me. In fact, you've been following me, not only because I... Uh, given these pronouncements and talk, but you've seen the work. You've seen the signs, the wonders, and miracles. So you know that the Father 
I like what the unbeliever Nicodemus himself knew when, when he came to Jesus at night and he says, no one can do the works that you do unless God is with him. No one can do that. And the disciples needed to be reminded of that as well. Jesus is reminding them and said, look, if nothing else, you don't understand what I'm telling you, you will later, but know this, right? I'm telling you these words and I need you to mark them down so that when these things happen, you will remember that I told you these things. So it's important. Let's go back to our notes. We'll continue. Point number five. This dynamic relationship that is for it, it, it is for a specific purpose. And we, we've read this verse in Ephesians 3, 8 through 11. It talks about this specific purpose that we have, our eternal purpose, right? That has been given to the church. Paul says, I, you know, I'm less than the least of all God's saints, but this grace has been given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God. So all of this is for a specific purpose. It is not to say that all of this happened just because uh, Jesus felt like teaching or some, some other thing. There was a specific purpose in which uh, the Father shows up and is available to be teaching in Christ. So this is important when it says... Um, and this is the point here in five, that there is a specific purpose. And what is that purpose? Is obviously the church. Right? This is what's new. This is on that day you will realize. What will you realize? Well, the church started on that day. Oh, what a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. It's part of the Father's plan that this would happen. So this relationship that will be extended to us is it was happening in Christ. And what was it to reveal? The very things that we've been talking about, that we have framed the deep things of God, things that eyes haven't seen, ears haven't heard, neither have they entered into the heart of man. What is that? The things that were hid in God, that no creature, not even angels, were privy to this information. Angels who looked into the face of God did not know this information. So God is allowing the church to be the instrument of the revelation. So then, point six, there is, there is obviously mutual awareness on the consciousness of both persons, right? The Father knew he was in Jesus. He was busy teaching, and Jesus knew he was in the Father. He was getting the information, right? He was experiencing all that the, all that the Father has is mine, belongs to me. Well, what is that? Well, I know what color socks the Father wears, I know what his favorite breakfast food is. I know what all... We could say that, oh, yeah, I know the Father. No, he's not even talking about any of that stuff. What does he mean by all that belongs? He's talking about the plan. And this is Rome, what we call Roman-style adoption. Roman, under Roman-style adoption, there's the, the, let's say, the Roman emperor who picks a person who will be the heir. And the heir will receive everything that is turned over to him. And then he runs the ship. So it, it is almost like what happened with Joseph and the, the most powerful nation on earth, Egypt, at the time. Joseph rose to the level second only to the prime, the person, the, the emperor at the time. I'm not sure. The pharaoh. They didn't call him the emperor. <laughs> so, and, and Joseph 
receive the signet ring of the king. So he could manage, the king gave Joseph authority for everything. Everybody had to report to Joseph for whatever it was, whether it was grain or uh, some part of the plan. Joseph administered that part of the plan. So who was Joseph? The king, the Pharaoh's son? No, Joseph was some Jewish slave, some Jewish person that was in prison, that was risen, had risen to that rank. He wouldn't have no one in note uh, in uh, Egypt. And so, in the same way, Roman-style adoption has it the same thought. God is using these metaphors to teach what is happening with him and his son. The fact that he's even called the son is a part of the fact that he is the eternal son, this was always the plan, that Christ would rule all things. Right? Is, all things would be made by him and for him, says Colossians chapter 1. So, so this, is, this is point number six. Obviously, there's mutual awareness on the consciousness of both persons that this relationship exists and functions. Right? You have to understand how it exists. Right? It's not trivial things. Yeah, I know the Father. And I get emotional every time I think about the Father. Right? It's not about that. It's about understanding the eternal purpose of the Father. Right? If we understand the eternal purpose of the Father, all things will fall into place for us as well, who are here on the earth, uh, heralding his wishes. So point seven. Okay, there's a couple more. For the humanity of Jesus, humility is a key factor. Otherwise, it would have been Jesus' will and not the will of the Father. So Jesus, essentially, when we talk about humility and how Jesus functioned in this relationship, he stepped aside. It wasn't. Jesus said it in many times. He says, I, the world must know that I love the Father and I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. Or in another point, place he said, he said, the world uh, has to understand my humility, right? It, I am stepping aside. It is not my will, it is your will. When he went to the cross, he knew that this relationship would only function not if he battled with the Father's will, but that he stepped aside and he allowed the Father to function in him. So where was Jesus's will? It was hidden, right? You didn't get to see Jesus, the real Jesus, right? We, we talk about this, right? But the only way you're going to know Jesus is if you know the Father. Because he was the image of the invisible God. He is the express uh, person, the, the exact representation of his being. Right. So when we look at Christ, really, you aren't looking at Christ. You were looking at the person, the physical part of Christ. But you were looking at the Father. So now, if you, if you don't see that, then you were, you're going to look at Jesus and think that Jesus... But Jesus told you, all that belongs to the Father is mine. The, the, the Spirit will take from what is mine and he will, will glorify me. But, uh, but this is a plan. Why is Jesus getting the glory here? It's because of the plan. That the Father had the plan to give it to Jesus and Jesus would rule all things. They're in agreement with that. So it's not like there's any friction on the part of... Uh, the Father and Jesus is not. So, so this, the humanity of Jesus has to get out of the way. When I look at that, look at our lives. Look, we have the relationship. Where's your life? Colossians answers, for your life is hid with Christ in God. Remember, we are in him, he's in us. 
Well, where are we? We are there, hidden in God. What are we deriving from that relationship? We become we become cognizant of the Father's plan, our calling, right? We begin to see, experience the life of the Father, right? Understanding what is his, what are His motivations, what are His love, what the love of the Father that we may know this love which goes beyond knowledge, right? Uh, and, and, and that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. There's, there's a lot of things that we derive from our relationship of being in the Father, in Christ. And then there are things that they derive from being in us. Well, what is that? The life we live on the earth is his life. Right? So when people see us, they're not supposed to see us. They're supposed to see Christ. Christ, like Paul says, I'm dead I died, but what? Christ lives in me. Right? The life that I live in the flesh, I live my faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So his, his, his acknowledgement of his life is over. Whatever it was, done. Now, who's alive in me? Christ. Now we know that this is a progressive thing. That we don't just turn it on and it just works like that. This thing works as we progressively grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, these things become more and more vivid in our lives, that Christ begins to take the reins of our will, our motivation, begins to uh, change our scale of values and our, our priorities change, and eventually he's able to just live in us, just like the Father was able to live in Christ. So this, we can take from his relationship so that we can understand. And there's one other verse here, Matthew 26, 39. What does that one say? Uh, let's just read it. Matthew 26, uh, 39 says, where is it? Here it is. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Whose will is that? Whose will is that? That is the will of Christ. He's saying, all that I have to go through, I am worried about this. That I have to go through this. That will be my will, Christ says. But he says it straight out. Yet, not as I will. So if there's any question about who has the authority and humility Christ submits to the Father every time. Now, it doesn't say that Christ doesn't exist. It doesn't say that he's not in there. But when it comes to the plan, the will of the Father, Christ submits to the Father and allows the Father to take him to the cross. Because that's the will. Christ could have said, you know, I'm going to skip the cross and I'm going to go a different way. He could have said, I will not have to experience that pain. Is there any other way I could still accomplish the mission and not go this route? And the answer is no. No, he had to die for the sins of the whole world in order for all that happened after to be a reality. So that's where Christ is saying, I have a will. The Father has a will. But who's in control here? The Father and so you got a chance to see both of those scenarios. Point number eight, we can learn from our experience of the baptism of the Spirit since Jesus modeled it for us. And that's where 
the way we we can learn how this works is to look at how it worked for Jesus and the Father. That experience, that relationship that they had, and the give and take, right? The how it worked is the model for how we can function in the world. Just like Christ was in the world, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, right? We're now in the world, and how do we function? In the same way, in humility, right? So these are things... And I will try to press forward with the last two verse points here. Let me see what the, our time is. It is 1.23. It is late. So last point. Jesus' relationship is unique in this way. He was the Messiah as well. So this is one point to make. right? In this relationship, Christ had on his plate additional information or responsibilities that we don't have. Uh, you, even when it talks about you taking up the cross and you are not going to the cross and dying for anybody's sins. The suffering of the Father imputing sins on the cross to Jesus Christ will never befall us. That is something that he did and he did alone. He's the only one who will have to go there. So that little scenario we were talking about in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ is showing you the struggle of that relationship. So in point H here, it was unique. He was the Messiah as well. So all of those signs, wonders, and miracles demonstrated that he was the Messiah. And the Spirit had a dual role in the person of Jesus. It's demonstrate the works that would identify him as such, right? Which is, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Those miracles identified, hey, that's the one. The Jews were able to recognize, hey, he's the one that's fulfilling prophecy. Hey, he's doing exactly what it says in Isaiah. He's, he's really, it's happening for him just like it said he would, right? So he had to fulfill that role. And not only that, he came to present the largest thing, which is the church age, so he had to pivot, not only be Israel's Messiah, but he also had to uh, have the role where he was the, uh, the focal point in the church. So and he had to introduce a theology of the new age to come, which came at Pentecost. And Jesus introduced that. Right? And all that Paul has and all that comes from Christ. So we learn from Christ but what are we learning? We, we recognize that this is the Father's plan. So this is, this is key. And I'll just say in the last and point I, please note the disciples did come to believe that we now have a record of this dynamic spiritual life. We have it before our eyes. So we're going to have to quit. Next week we'll continue more with this, but uh, hopefully we'll take some time. And if there are questions, if there are things that are not clear, we can discuss them in our Q&A sessions. So let's bow our heads as we close. Thank you, Father. We're so appreciative of your eternal purpose, which includes us. Uh, it does not exclude us, for you chose us in him before the creation of the world. So we thank you that you chose us. There's no, certainly nothing in us that would cause you to choose us, uh, as far as we can understand. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, just like the rest. We were by nature 
objects of wrath. But we thank you that you saved us and you justified us and you raised us up and seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the relationship that we have and we pray that we can learn about it. Not only that, we will be heralds of it going forward in our spiritual experience. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.